Welcome, welcome, welcome listeners to the UK Scriptwriters Podcast. Tim Clake here solo today, but there's a good reason for that. And that's because this edition is a Skype interview that Danny did. So it's one of those rare occasions, and for me enjoyable occasions, when I can enjoy the podcast as a listener. The interview's with Justin Trefgarn, who's an up-and-coming and yet already experienced writer and director. So Danny, as ever with these uh, podcast interviews, wanted to find out how he got to where he is, what he's learned along the way. Uh, you can find out more about Justin at justintrefgarn.com. Just wanted to also mention something about the podcast. Myself and Danny were thinking about what we're going to do with it in the future. How do we keep it running and so on. But we're committed to keeping it free. It's always been free and we always want it to be free. Uh, So no change there. But what we really want to do is put a shout out for if you want to give something back to us, then uh, please do check out the UK Scriptwriters Survival Handbook. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, all sorts of places. Uh, if you haven't got hold of a copy, then please, you know, uh, do get hold of that. It's got some great advice in there, not just from myself and Danny, of course, but from all the people that we've interviewed along the way, as well as many more. So, uh, yeah, do get hold of a copy, and that way we can ensure that we can keep the podcast running uh, totally for free. And that's something we want to do, giving something back to the script writing community. All right, let's get on with the interview. Well, we know each other from back in the day when you were a work, um, an exec, development exec at Working Title. Um, but you've got a very interesting kind of development background, you know, your personal journey from, uh, you know, somebody who wants to be a filmmaker to where you are now. So I always like to go back to the beginning, as it were. And just chart those early days of what you were doing, or did you go to uni? And uh, I know I know Lambda, some acting was part of it. So how would you how would you break it down? Um, well, yes. So yeah, you, you, your intro reminded me of that Spielberg quote. You know, he says, "When when I grow up, I still want to be a filmmaker." Yeah. Um, I, I think. Yeah, so, so where did it sort of start? Well, so, I, you know, as you do, you, you form these, as you say, these sort of somewhat unrealistic ambitions when you're young. So when I was about eight years old, the key moment for me was Superman 2. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, having seen the first movie, but having been super young and, you know, become quite rapidly obsessed with that film. But the second one was the one where I sort of became conscious that someone had made it. Mm. And I remember then thinking that would be a really cool thing to do, you know, to make make a man fly and entertain people the way I've just been entertained. I was, you know, really had a really profound effect on me. It's just a piece of filmmaking and it sort of stayed with me for a long time. And then, of course, you know, reality kicks in and I didn't have any industry connections. So I, you know, quite... Um, you know, I'm glad I did this. I went to university first yeah. and did a, did a sort of, you know, classic degree um, in history of art, which oh. was um, tremendous. Yeah, good one. Um, yeah, it was a, we, we called it the male bimbo de- degree, which is probably wrong in every sense to say that now. But, but it was a fantastic degree. Uh, and, you know, there were very few men on the course, which right. meant you had these, uh, you know, when you are sort of 19 and, and, and full of aspirations for the world and, and womankind, as I was, it was great to be surrounded by a lot of very beautiful, very intelligent 
and, uh, and, 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 you know, all talking about art, which is quite a good way of flirting with people. So that was very successful three years. And, um, you know, and actually on a more, much more serious level was uh, a, a life changer in terms of just opening my eyes and ears to, to looking at art in a way that I'd never really been encouraged to before. I mean, I, I, I was well taught in that area. Art had always been my thing at school, but right. painting and drawing and whatever. Um, and then, but to have really, really brilliant people just kind of forcing you to challenge your assumptions in a, in a really, really profound way was, was sort of set me up for life, really. And I have to say, I've never really... There hasn't, a day hasn't gone by when when that degree hasn't meant something to me uh, even now. Yeah. So, um, and then yeah, then and then decided to pick up where I kind of always wanted to go, which was drama school. I went to Lambda and did a did a course there. Um, and you know, my my sort of again wholly unrealistic sort of sense of this was that well, I want to be a director. I don't know how you do that. I didn't I didn't know if there were any sort of directing schools out there. It's sort of pre-internet, so it was all about who you you know what what people had told you and what everyone of course was telling me was that it was okay to do these things as a hobby, but the idea of pursuing a career in the arts was sort of suicide, which of course was a red rag to a bull. So I then went to drama school. I uh, discovered very quickly just how much better everybody else was than me at acting, um, but which was a sort of kick up the arse I needed to, to sort of then focus on um, directing. And I was very lucky to meet, in fact, I met my, my now wife there, um, and she was the one that said to me, you are that actor who's always complaining about directors. Why don't you shut up and, and direct and see if you can do it? And I was like, God, is it that simple? You know, yeah. so I did. Started directing. Um, did, did a lot of theatre, sort of fringe theatre. What year smallish. are we talking now? Are we... We're talking, so you're going to age me, Danny. You're going to yeah. shame me <laughs> in public. Um, so this was late 90s. Right. Um, well, mid to, actually, this is mid to late 90s. So this was around, yeah, so Tony Blair basically yeah. uh, I sort of, that, that's the kind of entry so OK Computer's 20th anniversary pretty much coincides okay. with both Tony Blair's coronation and my entry yeah. into the world of employment things will um, get better is but, the Tony Blair's theme song wasn't it yeah exactly exactly um, and for me for a while they did so I, I, I went off and did sort of theatre you know and then obviously you know much as I loved and I was actually hugely fortunate because I got to work as an assistant director which is not the same as a movie assistant director in, in, in theatre you literally are the director's assistant and you you, you get to work on the plays with them and I did a couple of big tours and I did the a season at the Open Air Theatre Regent's Park and working on these sort of humongous commercial sort of classical theatre you know George Bernard Shaw Shakespeare whatever and spent a lot of time um, you know, just, you know, you, when you do those big plays, they spend eight weeks rehearsing one one play, you know, so you're doing every line is kind of deconstructed and analysed and, and, and sort of beaten up until it, till the actors feel comfortable with how they're going to do it. And, you know, so that was an amazing yeah, time for me just to kind of really just spend that much time with scripts. And then, you know, always wanted to do films. I started sort of sending CVs out as you do. And then, you know, by hook or by crook, after a few stints of sort of soul destroying work experience, various people found myself working on a Neil Jordan movie um, yeah. as a runner, right. which was amazing. Um, I was the rushes runner, which meant that I was, as far as I was concerned, the most important person on the film. Yeah, and you which, were, yeah. But, yeah, well, they, you know, for about an hour. I mean, I'm believable really you think that you know the the most valuable thing on that film once they wrap is this is the shot negative yeah which they handed to me age 20 whatever you know and i would then bundle into a peugeot you know and then drive off to the lab at technicolor for processing you know so there's this terrifying sort of hour and a half where i was on a motorway somewhere with these cans of film in my car um anyway 
that was exciting. And also, just you know, the great thing about that was I got to turn up at the end of the day shooting for about you know an hour or so, and I'd stand literally with the camera department and, and sort of almost sort of you know shoulder to shoulder with Neil Jordan and the DOP, watching him sort of finish the day's work. And that was a, you know, even though I didn't learn a huge amount about sort of what he was doing, I certainly got just hugely kind of infected with the excitement of making a film. Yeah. You know, watching that machinery moving was just amazing and mind-blowing and just like, oh, my God, this actually is what I want to do. You know, there's no question now. Which film did that end up being? That was The End of the Affair with oh, uh, right. Ray Fiennes and oh, Julianne wow. Moore, which yeah. is a good movie, and, uh, and Graham Greene, great, uh, uh, you know, a novelist for whom I have a, a huge amount of time. So that was all very good. And then, yeah, then, you know, then it was the usual routes for short films and what have you. Um, you know, odds and sods. I ended up working as an assistant to a director called Oliver Parker. Oh, we yeah. did the importance of being earnest and various other things together, and and he was great. Uh, you know, really sort of, um, you know, lovely guy. Sort of let me into his life and sort of showed and and really through him. So he started sort of giving me scripts to read and saying, look, I've just been sent this. Can you sort of read it and tell me what you think? Because obviously he was very busy and couldn't read everything that he was sent. So I did, and through that work sort of got his attention because he quite liked some of the things I had to say about some of these scripts and put, you know, I put a couple of projects his way that he ended up sort of putting into developments himself. So on the basis of that, I then sort of got um, employed by uh, Barnaby Thompson at what was then Fragile Films, which was his sort of pre-Ealing Studios um, venture in, in Soho. Yeah. Um, and while I was there, I... Very shortly after that, got um, a phone call from someone at Working Title who basically said to me, look, we've got someone going on maternity leave. Um, we need someone to cover their desk in development. We've heard good things about you. Would you be interested? So I went along, had a meeting, was interested, met Tim and Eric um, and thought, well, this is there is no better place to be in the British film industry right now than Working Title um to learn to get excited to meet cool people you know and hopefully progress so that's what i did and i you know i was contracted for six months and ended up staying just under four years yeah. so it was a very good time for me and, you know not least uh, I, I met you <laughs> yes indeed that was a highlight of the whole well it's still to this day exactly yeah. that, that's the trophy well i will i will say something about your working title time um obviously that's when i met you and yeah you, you very kindly did a um an interview for me for my blog years ago when you were still at working title. But you said, uh, you said a couple of things in that interview that have always stuck with me. Um, one that, you know, being in the film industry and especially, especially pursuing saying writing or directing or both, it really has to be a calling for you. Um, and the second thing was that you spoke about the invisible qualities of story, which I really loved, uh, and not enough people kind of remark upon, I think. It's always about stuff that they can identify in terms of craft and three-act structure and stuff, and you spoke about the invisible qualities of, of story. So I just want right. to uh, remind you of that, and just, just in terms of... Um, well, a, the calling bit is obviously very true because the industry is so difficult to pursue yeah. as a freelancer. And I remember when you left Working Title, I remember it thinking, A, you were mad. And then B, <laughs> B, I was very inspired by it in terms of, you know, and you saying that it's a calling and, and, and you taking that jump to do freelance stuff. I thought that's, that's awesome. He's, he's going for it. And there was lessons to be learned for me there kind of thing. Um, sorry, that's a bit rambly, but I'm just kind of trying to feed that back into, I don't know, your experience there or um, 
yeah you know your yeah. your your motivation to leave and to pursue uh what you've been doing ever since sure well i don't i mean i don't know if this is a good or bad thing but i sort of still agree with those things that i said then um and it's, you know I've, I've evolved not at all since you last spoke to me uh, on the subject but i no i think it's look i mean it's a funny one because when you talk to americans about film you know they have a very different viewpoint just in terms of what it's like on the sort of in the trenches because of course they have a much more um, a much bigger and more kind of functional industry, you know, with a capital I. Mm. Whereas here, you know, it's a cliche to call the British film industry a cottage industry, but it, it, it is a, a very, there are very few people in the UK at the moment, I guess, sort of making films all the time compared yeah. to, you know, perhaps other industries. And particularly, you know, obviously since I, I, we did that interview, the explosion of, of high-end television um, yeah. across the globe has obviously impacted even more on that. So now everyone you speak to is as, as, as involved or willing to be involved in television as they were in movies, you know? Um, so that's definitely changed, but I don't think, and, and I think sometimes that gets a bit confusing as much as the people just sort of say, well, you know, which one is it either or, you know, and I, I still do think that stories, you know, sort of tell you how they want to be told and you have to make that decision. And I know the temptation now is probably to go, well, you know, even if it's, feels more like a movie i should do it as tv because that's where there is actual money to pay for this you know yeah. and that's not a that's not a bad decision to make but i do think that for me you know that sense of the calling is even more acute now because you know i am indeed working on television projects like everybody is but uh, but the, the film the feature film as a sort of thing for me is still a very special and powerful and i think extraordinary uh, form of, of of you know artistic endeavor that that is because it's under so much pressure now, particularly in this country, is it perhaps even more of a calling than it ever was. You know, it needs to be because the chances are, unless you are developing a film with working title or one of the major broadcasters, you are going to be and a few other companies that might have some money to spend who you know, with output deals that they might have with, with with financiers or whatever. But the chances are, a lot of this work you're going to be doing off your own bat. Yeah. And therefore, you're going to need to really care. I mean, I mean, you know this as an independent filmmaker yourself. You know, you so much of what you're doing relies on Danny Stack waking himself up at the right time of day and getting to work, regardless of whether anyone's actually saying, "Go to work." Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. No, um, Tim says it all is, the time, actually, to me. Um, it's like, yeah. ultimately, it's like no one cares, <laughs> and you're the only one who has to care. Um, yeah, and certainly no one cares as much as you. You know, that's the thing. You know, your film, is, you know, you one has an unreasonable expectation, I think, going into these things that everyone's going to care as much as you do about your idea, your script, your story, whatever it is. And that's you know, that's where it is again. It's vocational. You know, it's and I think in a way that's as it should be because what I've learned through sort of making, actually making films, particularly when they're your own films, is that actually. Well, it's your story. Why? Of course, you're the only person that cares as much as you do because you're the only person that really knows what this is about. Yeah. You know, because even if it's a sort of, as my film was, sort of disguised as a science fiction movie, at the end of the day, it's a very personal story. Yes. You know, um, and I sort of learned that, you know, as much sort of in retrospect as I was learning it at the time, you know, I'm more conscious of it now than ever. And I realized that, you know, you know, I, I, it was a making of Narcopolis. It was a very sort of um, life-changing experience for me, but part of it was also sort of stepping up and accepting responsibility for the fact that this was my story, this was my film, 
and yes, there were some extraordinary people came on came along for the ride, but the sort of first man and last man standing on that project was me. Yes, you know, for well, a reason. I very much want to speak about Narcopolis, which is your debut feature, obviously. Uh, but I just yeah. want to end on your time sure. as a development exec because it's interesting to me because in the media they never they always get a bad press, uh, and it's right. e- and it's e- it's easy to criticise them. Uh, and they seem much maligned in my view. I mean, in my experience as a reader around town, I never met um, a, an unclever or, or unkind development, development exec, if you know what I mean. Uh, right. And I just wondered, you know, from your own experience, how would you even define it or would you say, you know, from working in the trenches, you know, the difficulties, the the the, the, the politics that need to be established, you know, to negotiated. The, insi- sure. the insights that that must give you as well as a filmmaker going out on your own, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think you're right. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, I was not ultimately going to be a career development executive. And I was incredibly fortunate to find myself where I was. And, you know, it's obvious that there were people that, that for whom that was a career. You know, I had gone into that job you know, saying to myself, well, look, I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, I haven't been to film school. This is probably going to be as good as if not better than film school in many ways because I'm going to be sort of right there on the front line with all these amazing people and and that was true to an extent in many ways um you know working with some extraordinary talent and I think that what you know if I remember Tim Bevan saying to me when I said to him look I think it's time I moved on you know I, I while I was there I made a short film um in my spare time uh, you know which took me because I sort of had very little spare time took about 18 months in total to make this thing but you know at the end of it I was quite proud of what I'd done it was a very sort of sort of low budget kind of thing but it certainly was for me sort of set out my store as a filmmaker in some respects and um I remember Tim saying to me look you know this job is so demanding you're either 100% or, or, or not he said I don't think you can have sort of harbour harbour kind of desires to be creative and be writing and directing and do this job because you've got to sort of commit to one or the other which was really good advice actually and he was absolutely right and the other thing of course and partly it was a decision from his point of view he doesn't want someone there who's looking over their shoulder the whole time going when can I do what these people you know when can I move on you know he wants you there but equally I think he speaks to to I think an issue that does sometimes I think where some of the sort of bad rep comes from for these people i mean i think it's sort of twofold i think one of which is you are straddling two areas of the industry which are sort of in some ways incompatible which is the creative and the commercial you know your job as an executive particularly if you're working for a kind of studio style company like working titles that you're representing you know the money which is the studio who are backing these projects and the people that the, you know, the, the sort of sums of cash that are being funneled down through into whatever the projects are and that's you know sometimes large sums of money you know being spent speculatively hoping that you know something's going to come good um a lot of risk attached to that um and you have to and you're representing that on the one side but then on the other side you are you know the friend hopefully of the writer and or director the creative friend sort of working helping them sort of birth this project yeah and of course sometimes those two things rub up against each other you know films are not easy to make everyone thinks you know on the outside that they they look easier than, than than they are, but people often get very confused as to how films you know can just take so long to get made. And 
so many factors sort of collide and compete into the development of a project, particularly where large sums of money are being spent as they were at working title, that I think inevitably sometimes you do get this kind of clash of interests. Yeah. So you're having to make some very tough decisions about projects that you might even love, you know, and I, I, one of the things I found hard about the job is that I fell in love with projects quite, you know, because I guess I was coming from a more creative than commercial perspective. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, and I found that very tough, sometimes heartbreaking when projects just fell by the wayside. And, and, you, and sometimes it was for political reasons rather than either commercial or creative. Do you know what I mean? There were sort of other, and that, that can, that, that can be quite bruising and it definitely toughened me up. Mm. Um, on that front um, but then I think the other side you're right I mean the other thing I think that sometimes gets in the way is that I think that there are people doing this job who doing you know the, that, the job that I was doing a bit like me who were you know for them they were sort of on their way to do something else and a lot of them were frustrated writers yeah. who perhaps just hadn't had enough time or hadn't had the sort of breaks required to enable to sort of do it as, as a full-time job and therefore, we're kind of sometimes channeling some of that creative frustration into the work. Yeah. And, and I think that then disrupts what writers, are, you know, actual writers who were being paid to do it, were trying to do. And, you know, there's so much risk attached to, the, to, to a career as a writer and a director. So much risk. And I think that what you underestimate, you're on the other side of the desk and you've got a kind of monthly salary. So the person that's coming in to talk to you and work with you on this project with the best will in the world is carrying far, far more of that risk than you are. Yeah. And I think sometimes that was not perceived by the people, you know, on, on, on you know, myself included. You know, you just, you, you under, until you're actually doing it. You know, and they've chosen to do it. It's not, a, it's not a something you have to feel sorry for them about. You have to understand there just are different levels of risk involved. And at the end of the day, there is financial risk being carried by the company, which is, you know, obviously crucial in the long term. But... The sort of personal risk that writers carry, I think, is enormous, and they are incredibly exposed and vulnerable all the time yeah. because they have to be because they have to be available creatively to sort of go to places where that we don't have to, you know. And I think that that comes comes at a price. So I think you know there is always going to be sometimes a clash there. Um, no, that's but, interesting. You know, by and large, I had a I had a tremendous time there, and I you know I was just so fortunate with the people I ended up working with, inspirational writers and directors mostly who just you know and, and the, the great thing about all of those people is that when they sort of got wind of what I wanted to do you know to the man and, and woman sort of would pretty much say well off you get on with it do you know what I mean don't 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 stick around you just got to do it you know there's, there's no there's no time like now um there is no tomorrow well it was in as a reader interestingly I don't know if I've ever told you this uh working title you know, they put up a good front. It was always one of the um, friendliest offices to come into. And it was, right. It was always kind of um, warm and welcoming. And they even bought the reader's presence, which I'm sure you you were behind yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> um, whereas you'd go into other offices and you'd feel the tension or it would just be dead and stuff. And, and yeah. I just always remember that about working title. They had a good vibe going. Um, Absolutely. And also, it was, you know, it, it, there was nothing... You know, to, to be working for a successful company in films is incredible. You know, when you go to, when we do test screenings and we would do test screenings for some of the films, the comedies, or you know, and then you've got like, you know, I don't know, a couple of thousand people laughing their heads off and cheering and whooping and, you know, and just the sense of, and then the film opens and it actually, people go and see it and people actually talk about it. And it's like, you know, you're in, it's, it's an incredible feeling and it's infectious and, and it's also very exciting because you sort of got a sense of the sort of commercial 
possibilities, you know, because the other great thing about working title, which was, I think, was very sort of part of, which was really informed the culture there, which is they were not one of these companies that did rely on, um, you know, lottery money or, or broadcaster, you know, traditional kind of broadcaster finance to kind of keep them going. Yeah. Um, they were a commercial entity. And obviously when I was there, the overhead was covered by Universal. That was the sort of first look deal that they had. Um, but that became with enormous responsibility, you know, and, and those and, and contact with those studio people was incredible, actually. Um, you know, they would come over every so often and do, you know, meetings and particularly, you know, and you just you just got a sense of, I, I, you, you got this kind of atmosphere of excitement and buzz that you know, we were making films for a studio and it was a very fortunate position to be in, I have to say. You know, I, I look back and sort of pinch myself that I was lucky enough to be there, particularly when it was, in some ways, a kind of heyday for the company because they had these enormous Richard Curtis movies coming out, the, the Rowan Atkinson movies, and alongside Coen Brothers. It was a really fantastic mix, and they're still a, a force to be reckoned with, but it was perhaps the sort of, going back to our Tony Blair reference, it was the kind of heyday of that sort of optimistic, you know, new British, cool Britannia sort of era. Yeah. Um, you know, where, you know, badly drawn boy doing the soundtrack to About a Boy. And yeah. I don't know, all these kind of, all these elements that were just, and it was just working, you know, these things were just working. I worked with Joe Wright on Pride and Prejudice and then Atonement, uh, right at the beginning of his film career with all that energy and passion. Um, it was just amazing. Yeah. Well, charged with your industry acumen and your passion for filmmaking, you, you decided to take the jump and make your debut feature. Which was um, yes. a low budget sci-fi, but no, uh, you know, low budget but ambitious and you know, resonant sci-fi called Narcotics. Yeah. It was it was called something else originally, wasn't it? It was. Uh... It had a couple of names actually. Yeah, we sort of faffed around. We it was originally called Novikov B, which was a rather wonderful name that I was talk- <laughs> I was talked out of because no one knew what the hell it, what the hell it meant, which was kind of the idea. Um, but then, yeah, so then we ended up. With Narcopolis, which I think you know definitely describes the film we made in the in the end. No, it's a really cool title, I think. So, I mean, give us the pit, the basic pitch for it, and then maybe just talk through getting that together and, and getting it made and stuff. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm just so you know, for the sake of people, anyone that is actually listening to this, that there is you know, it wasn't a seamless transition. I didn't leave working title and start pre-production on Narcopolis. Uh, there was quite some time, you know, kind of in the trenches working out how to do stuff. Because mm. um, the other thing was, of course, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and be a writer and a director. I'd made one half-decent short film and never written a full-length screenplay. So, um, you know, it was fighting talk. Yeah. Um, but yes, so in terms of the film, so the film Narcopolis itself is a, is a, is a, kind, of a, a kind of dystopian um, science fiction thriller set in a sort of alternative um, version of London in the sort of not too distant future, sort of 2020s, where owing to the um, ongoing sort of economic decline in the West, which was sort of precipitated by the 20, 2008 crash, sort of the way I saw it was that, that sort of there was no recovery. So you can imagine that we just sort of carried on things you know, started to sort of break down quite substantially. So you've got this much more almost sort of recycled, dare I say, almost sort of third world London where, where you know, things are traded and, 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 and swapped and stolen and whatever. So you've got this sort of volatile environment into which, you know, the authorities in their wisdom decide to legalise uh, all classes of narcotics as a means to kind of, I guess, you know, ultimately sort of anaesthetise the population. But the way they do it is a sort of, 
touchy-feely way of sort of handing over to bright and colourful um, corporations who are there to kind of, um, you know, to, 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 to produce these drugs in a kind of safe fashion. Yeah. Um, there is a black market, but it's sort of rapidly diminishing, and there is a special unit of police sort of set up, um, these sort of roaming kind of freelance cops, sort of plainclothes cops who sort of drive around London um, you know, lo- looking after this situation and sort of, you know, officially they are, you know, keeping the population safe, etc. But unofficially, I guess what's really happening, which becomes quite obvious, is that they're keeping the black market dealers off the streets in order so that the, the bigger and increasingly successful drug manufacturers can, can, can retain market share. Fantastic. So that's the sort of world. And then into that, we pour, I sort of dropped this story of a, of this one particular policeman, a guy called Frank Reeves, who in the opening sort of scenes of the film discovers a body that cannot be identified and also um, neither can the drug in its system. And that sort of triggers a chain of events for him in an investigation that he is warned off by his superiors, but then through encounters with other people and sort of digging deeper into this kind of netherworld of underground drug dealers, et cetera, et cetera, starts to uncover what he perceives to be a sort of massive conspiracy on the part of the um, one of the major drug manufacturers. Um, and, you know, obviously in the, in, in the spirit of all conspiracy thrillers, the closer he gets to the truth, the more danger he finds himself in. Great. No, and you had a good cast as well, and you? you had like Jonathan Price, you had uh, Harry Lloyd as well. Indeed, yeah, no, lots of people who've gone on to done huge things. I mean, Jonathan Price, you know, he's really successful now. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, yeah, so amazingly, we got, uh, yeah, so Jonathan was one of the extraordinary people that ended up working on this film. Um, Elliot Cowan took the lead part. Um, Elliot's now doing all kinds of amazing things, but he's done. Um, you know, he, before I met him, he was Stanley Kowalski to um, Rachel Weiss's, uh Blanche Dubois in uh, Street Planet Desire in the yeah. West End. And then he done sort of TV stuff and then um, and a couple of films. And then was obviously Narcopolis and he's now doing other great stuff. And then, then we had Elodie Young, who was then a sort of rising star in France. But then I think our mind was either her first or second English language movie. And she's just she was Electra in season two of Daredevil. Um, she's done all kinds of things. She's 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 great. Um, Harry, brilliant. Um, yeah, loads of actors actually. Um, and of course, the excellent James Callis, who you might know from Battle. Battle oh, sorry about that. Hang on. Let's get rid of that call. Um, who you might know from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, and, and, and all manner of people besides my, uh, my my lovely wife. She takes a tremendous. Uh, she she plays Elliot's Elliot Cowan's uh, partner in the film uh, very well, and also um, my son. In fact, ended up in the film as well. My son, my eldest son, uh, played Elliot, Elliot's son. So it became. Someone said it's the most expensive home movie ever made. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so was this a full-on indie affair, or was it like just piecing yeah. it together bit by no, bit? Absolutely, I sort of thousand percent indie. I mean, we we. I mean, I say that, but we. So the first iteration of this project was for uh, Eye Features, which was a sort of low budget, yeah. super low budget film initiative. Which was this was the second ever iteration of it that was done in Bristol. So so we yeah, so we went down to Bristol. We entered this competition. So what happened was they chose six films for a kind of nominal development, and then we choose three for production. And it was kind of guaranteed that three of these films would get made, um, and that was very exciting. Um, and so we took part in this thing and they gave us a little bit of money. And in fact, we ended up spending all of it on on making a little sort of teaser trailer, which we did for a sort of one minute uh, teaser trailer in which we 
had some VFX shots. And we, you know, because one of the big challenges of this film right from the get go was that everyone goes, oh yeah, what a cool idea to make kind of low budget British sci-fi. Yeah. Um, and then everyone look, and everyone just goes, but it'll never happen because no one does that. Yeah. Um, there are no, you know, and when you talk to even like the commercial end, we start companies and stuff initially, they go, like, oh, we love you guys, the ambition, da, da, da. but there's nothing like this for us to compare this to. So we can't give you any sales estimates. I mean, it was literally like that. There were just no, no, no one was doing that at the time. So it was kind of interesting. So we, we made this little one minute teaser trailer, which was the best uh, thing we could have done. We, we didn't get chosen for one of the three films, which was rather disappointing. Yeah. Um, we licked our wounds for a little bit. I say we, it was ended up being me. So the producer I was working with decided he'd had enough um, already. So he, he left. And I then very fortunately met with um, uh, a, a guy who had just come out of the sort of tech world. Um, he created a company which he'd sold to um, Cisco and he was doing all kinds of cool things with apps and in the digital space. It was a real kind of tech entrepreneur. And he got talking, we got talking one day at a party about this. And it was literally, I kind of showed him this teaser trailer on my phone. And he was like, that is amazing. Mm. How can I, how can I get involved? So, you know, cut to the chase, this guy and a team of sort of angel investors sort of came together and I met with them and sort of pitched the project. And we sort of bit by bit sort of put together a sort of finance plan for the film. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're sort of, you know, to their great credit, um, they just, you know, loved the idea, loved the sort of sense of it being sort of slightly disruptive in terms of there not being anything like it out there. For them, that was a good thing, you know, coming out of a different industry to movies. They were like, this is great. There's nothing like this out there. Let's, you know, so they got on board as kind of angel investors and we set in motion the kind of process of getting the film made through this like super independent um, sort of pathway. So a budget more than the eye features it ended up probably being, did it? It did. Well, the initial budget was not. They What they put on the table, and it was an interesting sort of way in which they did it, which was as much as like, well, here is X amount of money, which you can, which we're willing to sort of put behind this film, but we're willing to put more behind the film if you can get, if you can cast it up, you know, to a certain level. And so, and it was a kind of, uh, the, the sort of cash flow, as it were, sort of, they, they set milestones for me so I think yeah. you know interestingly unlike say film investors these people were prepared really to lose their money rather than see the film released and be rubbish so so for them it was like well we'll finance production and then we'll, we'll take a look at a rough cut and then we'll finance post-production and to me so it was a bit like that so I had to sort of pass those tests right. in order to, to those stages of finance release and they had the option to go I'm sorry, this is not what we expected, we're done. Yeah. You know? um, so it was a pretty unusual, and at times, I'd say, pretty stressful way to do things. But it was also, you know, for me, people were actually offering me money to make a movie, which was like, that was the goal, you know, and, and there was no one else knocking down my door to do that at that stage. So it was by far the best thing to do. Well, one of the key challenges I'm thinking is the fact that it's set in the future. And you've got visual effects going on. And uh, so I don't know how much now you recall that with great warmth <laughs> or great stress. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was a bit of both. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no news in a filmmaker telling you that it was quite stressful to make their film. Um, it was ambitious. I mean, the film was wildly ambitious in terms of what we had to spend. Um, I had worked out a way of doing it that I felt was doable. Mm -hmm. um, within that, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is the fact that every, everyone that worked on the film got paid. Um, you know, we didn't 
you know, and they may not have been paid what they would have got, their sort of market rates, but no one went home empty-handed. Um, and and equally, you know, yes, we had, I don't know, it's north of about 150 visual effects shots in the end, um, which was, and, and, you know, as I've learned from doing it, you know, obviously given the scale and ambition of the film anyway, um, we had a sort of quota of visual effects that we believed were going to be in the film, some of which we tried to solve practically. But then what happened was, you know, as the story and film evolved, um, and once we got into reshoots, there was a new sort of level of visual effect which we brought to bear. Because one of the things we discovered was that when you are competing, at any, it doesn't matter what the budget of the film, if you're going to have on screen, you know, digital effects, they have to be as good as the ones in Iron Man. Yeah. If, if you're not, a, you can't go, you can't put a disclaimer up in your film saying, "Oh, sorry guys, you know, bear with us. We only had ten grand. <laughs> only had ten grand. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people and audiences are not at all um, sympathetic to that. No. You know, I, I, and quite rightly, they don't want to be told to feel. They don't. You know, they don't want caveats. So, you know, we were operating at quite a high level there. So the visual effects became quite a monster. I mean, we had one other. Um, very sort of unfortunate uh, situation, which was that the guy who was taking sort of responsibility for our visual effects um, was taken very suddenly ill and, and, and actually sadly passed away sort of midway through our production period, our post-production period. And, you know, he was a lovely, lovely guy, wonderful guy. I met him in Bristol during the Eye Features period and a guy called Phil Webster. And he basically was this kind of one-man band who'd taken sort of almost total responsibility for all the visual effects. But... Once we lost him, we realized we had this gaping hole that we couldn't fill, you know. And so then it, that required sort of entrepreneurialism. And I ended up working with two separate companies, actually. One was a kind of sports graphics company, if you can believe, in, in, based out in West London. Yeah. And the other, the other company was, uh, was based in Delhi, New Delhi, um, who were a sort of startup, very ambitious startup. Um, so and that brought with it its own headaches in terms of different time zones and monsoons and various things. Um, but you know, we got these kind of world class digital effects cobbled together by the end of the process. And when I say by the end of the process, I mean we were still dropping shots into the film a week after it had been graded and and, and signed off on. Yeah. Um, but we got it all together. We hit the deadline that we needed, and, and that was. Um, that was a relief. Uh, but yeah, so it was, so the visual effects side of things was extraordinary and taught me enormous, you know, I didn't really know, I'd never really done visual effects before. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I'd worked on films where there had been visual effects, but when, when it's not your movie, you kind of sit back and fill dramas and go, oh, that's good, you know. Yeah. And then suddenly you're involved in the, the nitty gritty and you realise what a palaver it is. I mean, it's just extraordinary, just the simplest things. And of course, when you're low budget, you, you cut the wrong kinds of corners. So on set, we didn't have a full-time visual effects supervisor, yeah. which meant a lot of the time we were kind of going, you know, is this okay if we do this? And they'd be going, I think so. Send us a screen grab. Well, you know, and, and inevitably things got lost in translation. So we would then hand them materials and they'd be like, oh my God, you know, this is, we can do this, but this is now another sort of three weeks work because yeah. of all the, all the rotoscoping we're going to have to do because you didn't quite lock the camera off the way you said you would or whatever it was you know real rook some of them were real rookie mistakes yeah um so you know it was a massive learning curve and i have to say one of the most pressurizing parts of the shoot in terms of in post-production because it it meant putting you know the, the companies involved worked under an enormous amount of pressure and they were all doing this really more for love than money and visual effects you can't really do them for love 
you've got to do them for money because they just are so time consuming. This is you know, it. and there's so many iterations. Well, th- this is one the thing that I'm learning in my filmmaking journey is that the post production is all really, and that's where you really feel the strain and really feel the pressure because, as you say, it's it's a you know it's 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 skill and it's equipment that has to be allocated for, and there's always money involved. Really, um, it's very rare that you might get it for absolute freely. Um, but I'm wondering as well for you, did that extend the you know the production process? Are we talking now two or three years into the whole? Oh yeah, I mean, well that's the other. So the thing that I haven't really sort of shared with you is that so we we shot this film incomplete. So we knew there was some material, some sort of. There were bits and pieces that we didn't get in our sort of principal photography that we sort of knew about that we're going to sort of do with a sort of sort of smaller kind of second mobile second unit after we shot. But what happened was we shot for about four weeks and assembled the film. And during that, even during the four weeks of shooting, by we had this extraordinary thing. So we had pretty confident start by about week two, week three. We were really we seemed to have hit our stride. And then I think by virtue of sort of naivety, lack of experience, and overly optimistic sense of what could get done we had saved a number of our production headaches for the final week uh and we had underestimated quite spectacularly just what it would take to get to nail some of the sequences that we're planning to do in that final week um and of course you've locked in actors etc etc so we I, we brought in a line producer about halfway through who had some experience working for on Christopher Nolan movies, et cetera, et cetera, someone called Paula Turnbull, who was absolutely brilliant. But she took one look at that schedule and was basically like, you are screwed. <laughs> and we're like, no, you know, we were all so rock and roll by that stage. We're like, we can do this. And it was, you know, we were having an amazing time. You know, the, 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 the level of collaboration, the sort of family atmosphere, the spirit with which we were making this film had really kind of, we really all come together massively. And it was very exciting. And we were getting some good stuff. You know, my DP, Chris, who was, was unknown to me going in, was revealing himself very quickly to be a genius. And everyone was just staggered by his work. Some of the actors, particularly some of the lesser known actors on the film, had, were just coming through with this incredible, these amazing performances. And we're like, oh, my God, you know, this is extraordinary. And then we hit this sort of logistical car crash in the final week. So what happened after that was because of the timeline I was on and because of the way investment would get released, I basically, you know, we cut the film for a short amount of time. We then assembled the film. We did what we considered to be a sort of pretty sort of, not a fine cut, but a pretty good assembly of the film with bits and pieces in it, quite a few of the visual effects shots, showed this to our investors. And that was really where reality dawned, was that much as we had tried to cover for ourselves, there were moments in in, in what we shot which were just not up to standard. Right. You know, there was a combination of inexperienced direction, but mostly it was just trying to do too much with too little. Right. And you could just see it was just creaky around the edges. And there were just moments that just that, that, that we had to kind of cut down to their essence that had lost their raison d'etre. Do you know what I mean? There were, there were a couple of action sequences that just felt too pared down to work. Right. And we tried to mask it with some visual effects work. And what have you. Anyway, so the, the, the writing was on the wall. So the investors were very disheartened at this stage they stepped away and were basically like we're not sure what the next step is we're not dropping you but we don't really know what to do we don't really see us putting more money into this as the as, as, the, as the logical next step um so we were obviously very disheartened by that um we that said we i went away and had a sort of think about it i looked at the film and i did um i'd been to a q a many years ago with alfonso Cuaron, and he had said the only job 
you have in post-production is to take out the bad and preserve the good. Mm. And with that in mind, I went, I, I sort of took the film away from my editor. I mean, not, not sort of aggressively, I just said, you know, let, let me have the film for a bit. I put it on, I sort of got myself a copy of Avid, tried to work out how to work Avid, which was a headache. But anyway, in doing so, I chopped out all of the bits of the film. So basically, I just watched the film, and every time I kind of cringed, mm. I, I just went, stop, pull. And I pulled out all of the moments that I hated. Yeah. And then I looked at what I had left, and I had about 60 minutes of 90 left. Mm. I then went back to the screenplay, and I looked at that, and I thought, well, what if, now knowing what you now know, what would you, you do differently? And some of the problems we had were not just production. Some of them, I think, were script problems that I had not seen coming until we were there on the day. Mm. So those sections... I literally just rewrote. So I, I started rewriting the script along. So knowing that there was, so, so a bit like I've done with the edit, I preserved the sections of the script that I knew were, were shot and, 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 and usable. And, and then I, I then took out the bits that weren't working and then sort of reconfigured around them what I felt we needed. Um, I then took that plan to the financiers. They were impressed with my sort of, you know, entrepreneurialism, but, not, but no more inclined at that stage to, 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 to come on board with more money because what we realized was that we didn't just need reshoots. We needed a substantial period. We needed about probably anything up to two more weeks of filming to really get all this material into shape, mm. particularly, and it, was, and it also involved a bit of recasting. So, you know, I, I, I met with Elliot, who my leading man, who by that stage had become a friend and you know, talked him through the plan. And he was about to go and shoot a big mini series in a big series rather than in Swansea for, for David Goyer, who was the, the writer of co-writer of the Batman movies, amongst mm. other things. Anyway, long, long story short, I, I went down to visit Elliot again in Swansea, by which time he'd made friends with David Goyer and had expressed to him what we were planning to do and just kind of like basically kind of asked him for advice. And David had said, well, look, bring him down, let's have a chat. I met with David, I met with Elliot's production people and they turned around and said, look, if you can, you know, get the get, get a crew together, et cetera, et cetera, we will offer you the sort of backlot facility. You know, you can come and shoot here while we're on hiatus. Wow. Now, the show was set in... Uh, you know, Renaissance Florence. So the actual sets they built were completely useless. But the but the whole area is kind of industrial derelict, which right. is the set the setting of my film. Yeah. So we literally just spent like two months driving around Swansea, looking at various places with the assistance of the local council, and just and, and ticking off locations like industrial derelict and power stations and what have you. You know, looking for key places where we could, and then went back to the script and kind of reconfigured bits so that really the idea was we would shoot the whole movie, the whole section that needed shooting, which is about 30, 30 pages odd. I'd written the extra material in Swansea. Yeah. Um, which all seemed like a great idea at the time. And then, of course, I tried to get my cast back together. Elodie, by this stage, had gone from being a sort of, you know, rising star over here to a Hollywood actress with about 52 people, you know, protecting her from phone calls from people like me. Mm. Um, and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And so it became an, this. And, and then, you know, we had a, a very well-known actor attached to play a, a role that I kind of reconceived. Um, he... Um, was was and, and he basically once he had said he would do it, um, we got um, my financiers kind of came back on board with an offer in terms of what they were prepared to invest. It wasn't enough. I then went to a, to another third party investor 
who agreed to put some money in um, and that sort of buoyed them up and they were excited by that. We put the whole thing together and then um, this well-known actor dropped out at the last minute. We were already in pre-production. We had a, a crew hired. Everyone was in Swansea. We were about a week before, you know, about, about five days before we were due to start shooting and he walked bailed for, for perfectly good reasons, but completely unhelpful to us. Financiers, rightly, you know, quite understandably lost their you know, it lost their nerve. My amazing casting director, Manuel Puro, came to the rescue, found someone else who happened to be James Callis, who was miraculously available, said he'd do it, you know, the drop of, you know, very short notice. So managed to reconvince the financiers that this was a, this was a go. Got started shooting in Swansea. Day two, Elliot, lead actor, who was in every single scene, whose girlfriend was currently in London, very pregnant with their first child, turns around to me and goes, uh, Kate's waters have broken, I have to leave and go and be with my child. So on the basis of that, having got all of these elements together, we had to shut down the, the Swansea shoots and move back to London to be near Elliot and continue from there. And I have to say, there are film gods because despite the enormous stress of that, I had about four days from when we shut down Swansea to where we had a whole load of actors booked who were very expensive and very brilliant, who were gonna come and do a couple of days, various key scenes who could not move, we couldn't move that date. So I had to have locations and everything ready for them. So that, so that basically, including James Callis, who was flying over from Los Angeles, especially to do this. And we didn't have any flexibility there. So, but we were very close to Christmas at this stage. And the miraculous thing was that, that a lot of locations that I'd looked at in the first configuration, which we were not able to get because they're, they were too expensive, were all kind of available and sort of unoccupied in the run up to Christmas. And so did us these extraordinary knockdown rates. And we managed to, in sort of minus three, minus four degrees, which was the kind of running temperature at the time, put together this, re reconfigure the shoot for London, uh, bearing in mind that the rest of the film was shot mid-summer. So <laughs> we had to somehow match. And this is where, again, there are film gods or just a god, because every time we arrived on set, it was overcast and freezing. And every time we were ready to turn over, the clouds parted and the sun broke, and so we could and we could match the light. So it was extraordinary. It was it was a, a time of when I look back on it, I can't really believe we got through it sort of emotionally because it was a roller coaster of extraordinary proportions um, and incredibly tense and terrifying because at any stage the whole thing was ready to collapse all the time. But I'd say you know, you film is collaborative and you. You, you realize it more than ever when you are your back's against the wall because there are people there who are just ready to go into battle for you my first ad chris stoling my editor robbie just a whole bunch of people who just pulled out all the stops um my family whoever you know who, who just enabled this process to keep going well that, that's a great indie film story i i, I didn't know that part of the production <laughs> process uh, but well, what I love about the ending, I mean, sorry, you carry on. No, what I love about it was, you know, it all stemmed from your creative um, revision, as it were, in terms of that re-edit and that rewrite. You know, the, the practical versus the creative, and then, or the practical becoming the creative, and then that yeah. that launching that whole new period for the film, really, um, all from that and kind of blank yeah. reassessment of it, and that's that's great. That's a really good kind of insight, I think. Well, I think it's a rare, you know, obviously I wouldn't advise people to do, you know, sort of development on their film in post-production. <laughs> um, but what it did enable me to do is perhaps go through a process that I think I think you have to ultimately go through as a filmmaker anyway, which is that, you know, 
you the, you where the hard reality of what it takes to make a film that you can have even a fighting chance of getting to the market and 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 selling in some way you know what that takes versus the idea in your head of what it takes exactly you know? yeah and, and 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 as i was really in practical terms the, the the producer of the film as well as the writer and director it meant that i got that frontline experience and and it was extraordinary you know it was an, an in a way an incredible privilege to have that you know i can't say at the time it always felt like that because no, you were just all. you know going tearing your hair out and, and and trying to kind of keep everybody all the sort of separate parties happy um who all have concerns you know i mean everyone was wanted the film to work but there was also this huge sense of like but you know when is enough enough you know and i think some people that for some people that point comes quite early in a process you know and you kind of have to sort of avoid them <laughs> and, and and keep going with the people for whom who understand what you're trying to do and i have to say as i said there were some key people working on the film with me who just saw who understood what we were trying to do and, and, and stayed with us the course and i think then you know the, the final sort of piece of the puzzle which was you know, being the sort of only producer really who was on the ground doing the kind of marketing of the film to prospective buyers, I, you know, we, we did a Kickstarter campaign to sort of top up our post-production funds and that was enormously informative. Not only was it exhilarating to do the Kickstarter, um, Elliot sort of joined in with that and, and we sort of, you know, we, we, we raised the sum of money that we were needed to raise and we, we timed the sort of peak of the campaign to be um, during the first week of Cannes. So we flew out to Cannes and we, we hit our target. We sort of gate crashed a BFI party and sort of toasted ourselves and everybody else. And But also, more importantly, we were out there because we had no buyers for the film at all. No one had come near this film. We were so off the radar mm. that no one knew about us at all. And... You know that you know what had happened to me. Obviously, once I'd wrapped the film, where everyone was sort of high fiving and saying, "Didn't we do well?" For me, the sort of creeping sense of dread. I remember creeping in on literally the day we wrapped, which was like, "This is not even, this isn't even close to being over." This process, you know, um, I've got to, I've got to make this money back for these people who've put faith and resources my way mm. based on based on just me talking at them you know I've got to now show them that I what that what I meant was true so we went out to Cannes we'd written to a bunch of people none of whom had written back to us so we went anyway Elliot and I just got a plane out there found a little place to stay and started doorstepping sales agents you know and had the incredible good fortune to literally I mean I probably shouldn't say this live but we broke into a hotel. I did. Well, it wasn't there actually. He'd gone home by that stage. And I sort of broke into, there's a hotel where all these fancy agents are yeah. on the croisette, which you can't get into because there's buzzers. Yeah. And I saw this kind of old lady coming out. She was, and I said, oh, let me hold the door for you. And as she <laughs> exited, I sort of ran in, got the lift, got the lift up to where XYZ, the American sales company were, who were my sort of number one on my list of people to, to get to. And, um, you know, literally knocked on their door and I was like, hi, you don't know who I am, but I've got a 10 minute promo reel for a film I've made here. It's not finished yet. We're still in post-production, but would you take a look? And to their great credit, they're like, okay, we've got a few minutes. Let's have a look. And they're like, oh, wow, man, L.D. Young. Oh, wow, Johnson Price. This is cool. You know, well, let us know when you finish and, and, and let's go from there. Um, and about six months later or, or so, I was in Los Angeles because bizarrely I'd been nominated with some other people for an Emmy for a kids TV show that you might well know, Peter Rabbit, that oh, yeah. I'd, I'd written on. And so we, the finished film, the film, I had literally locked the movie three days before I flew to LA. I got a cut of the film sent to me via, you know, the internet, which I downloaded off Vimeo, 
sent to XY, called XYZ and said, you remember me from nearly a year ago now? Well, here I am with the film I said I was going to finish. Well, here it is. And they're like, cool, let us see it. We'll get back to you. They called me the next morning and said, let's meet. And they took it off the market there and then. <laughs> Dude, so you've, got, you've of... got an old school can story in there in terms of like uh, crashing <laughs> um, a sales agent. You've got a LA story. You've got a nightmare indie film kind of post-production story. You've got, you've got it all. It's all happening. It was a roller coaster, I have to say. I mean, it was, you know, it, but, you know, it, it was what, what you have to do. You know, I mean, we, it was an independent film. There was no one going to do this for us. And the idea, you know, by that stage, we had, you know, three or four hundred thousand pounds worth of people's money at stake. You just can't piss around, you know, you just got to, you got to do what it takes. Well, tell us where the film's available now, anyway, so everybody can see it. Yeah, so we so we got distributed by a, a great company called Altitude in the UK, and and it's on. It, so it had a sort of limited theatrical release, and then it went sort of quickly on sort of digital formats as you do. So there's D, you can buy a DVD on Amazon. You can watch it on Amazon Prime uh, in this country. It's on Sky Box Office, or whatever it's called in yeah. the UK. Um, it's available for illegal downloading everywhere, as far as I can tell. So well, if you're that, not, you know, you've made it if it's available. For if, you, you. if you're not prepared to spend money on it, don't worry. You don't have to. Um, <laughs> and then there's, and I think in the US, uh, it's you know Blu-ray, DVD, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and then also available um, on US Netflix. Awesome. Um, well, we encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, proper yes. indie film story there. I love it. Um, and nowadays, you've done the debut feature. You're presumably, you know, gung ho for your second or even third, or a big slate of things going on. Massive slate, twelve picture deal with uh, Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. So, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I obviously, I mean, I have to say, it, it did. It took me a little bit of time to recover from at least four years of my life I spent making Narcopolis and getting it released. Um, you know, I feel pretty good, was, though, indie-wise. That's you know, for, of that. Yeah, as I mean, well. I think the other thing that I wasn't ready for, and I don't know if you found this. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you, you've been through this, so I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm te- sort of talk, teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. But you know, the, the other great sort of roller coaster part of the whole process is the actual physical release of the film itself. I mean, you not only are you, you know, getting the film delivered is a ball egg, <laughs> particularly when it's just you, you know, you and the editor trying to kind of configure formats. And we were enormously well supported by our post-production house, Molinaire, but nonetheless, there was a lot of donkey work we had to do. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the film comes out, we premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Um, and, you know, we had a mixed response. There's no two ways of looking at it. And mm. I think that was something that I wasn't quite, you know, I had no delusions that I'd made, the next Godfather or whatever, you know, I knew that we'd made a run and gun indie movie. I think that where the film, you know, but I think what also had happened is that during the course of making this film, I had discovered the film I wanted to make whilst making it, if you see what I mean. And it had become, and there are many moments of the film that get quite personal for me. And I expressed something that I wasn't expecting to express, or I found a way of kind of writing scenes that were sort of, you know, part of a story that I wanted to tell wrapped up in this kind of science fiction cloak mm. and the film is an interesting you know from, from i think some people expected more of the kind of out and out sci-fi actioner and i think we're surprised by the fact that some of it's quite ponderous and, and, and meditative i mean sure. it goes it goes like the clappers it's not a film that sort of sit, hangs around it's yeah. just literally hits the 90 minute mark pretty much on the nose but it's um but i think it's just that sense of you know um it's not like 
you know a lot of other films it, 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 a lot of things kind of sort of blend with in, in Narcopolis you know sort of there's a sort of family drama in there and there's also a kind of redemption story it's almost quite biblical in places and there's also this kind of there's a time travel element there's a there's a sort of dystopia there's there's a lot of competing elements that that we try to sort of wrestle and to wrangle rather and, and I think that you know what I wasn't expected I, I was hoping that more people would have kind of gotten to the sort of core of the emotional you know story that I was trying to tell and after you know some people did and were hugely moved by it you know I mean we had this amazing screening where Jonathan Price came and you know he sort of just erupted at the end of the film he was like oh my god you know and just embraced me and was like you know and that was such a great moment for me you know yeah. but then you know you're also prey to the people with laptops in cafes who call themselves film critics you know who's kind of just whose who's sole mission is to destroy something um and you know a bit of that went on and you know mixed response from the mainstream media and then some really fantastic reviews from a couple of places so overall it was just a very that that became a whole and I think I was quite spent I have to say by that stage emotionally yeah um and I wasn't really sort of so long story short again I just there was a few months of wound licking I needed to go through, I think, and also just soul searching. You know, why, you know, what, what, what are the lessons learned from this process and what do you want to do next? And that's sort of where I find myself now. So I've got a couple of things on the go. There's, a, there's some stuff that I've been developing off my own bats, which is, um, which are now beginning to sort of see the light of day, which is very exciting. Yeah. I've been writing on other people's things. You know, I've been working as a gun for hire, yeah. dip my toes in television um, for grown ups as well as what I did for kids, obviously, before. And then, I'm writing a show for a, a dystopian science fiction uh, thing for YouTube, actually, of all people at the moment, which wow. is a, a series, a 10-part series that's in a sort of Hunger Games kind of tone um, set in a, a dystopian London of the 23rd century, which is very exciting and I'm loving. Um, and I'm also um, just, we're just now going out to cast on a procedural a really cool procedural police sort of thriller, um, sort of true detective, Silence of the Lambs kind of vibe, which is set in Kentucky, um, which I'm working with two excellent producers, a guy called Alexander Mandel and uh, Leo Perlman, who's uh, with a company called Full World 73. Um, and they are, you know, great partners. And we're, we, we've got casting director on board the last couple of months, and we're now just starting to go out to people. Um, and it's a female-driven police thriller, which is contemporary. And one of the things I was very keen to do is much as I love doing science fiction and I genuinely do I felt that for my sort of next feature I would like to be able to kind of pare it down a bit in terms of production to allow for more time and energy to be spent on character and and, and that kind of stuff yeah um the sort of storytelling element you know with Narcopolis there were so many moving parts that sometimes I think I just got overwhelmed by just the need to construct something that made sense right as opposed to allow something to become the fully realized version of itself through time and care that's all very well just thank you for being so honest and so insightful um and inspiring as well because that whole story i mean obviously we know each other but even chatting for the last hour i think you know it's been really interesting and insightful to hear and also just how things going back to the calling stuff you know and, and plowing on with all this stuff that's going on now and whilst always being exciting and invigorating it it still it doesn't get easier it gets harder and the fact that you've done your debut feature and maybe i'm talking about a bit about myself here as well 
It's just yeah. like the, the levels always go up and the demand always goes up and the amount of energy and commitment always goes up, I find. Definitely. And I, and I think the expectations you place on yourself. Yeah, that's up, it. You know, yeah. Because part of doing your first feature, you know, as I'm sure you recall, is like, is just doing it. You know, you're like, I'm actually doing this. That's part of the kind of momentum is just the fact that it's happening. And then, and then obviously for the second time, going back for more, everything, all the stakes are raised. You know, the expectations on you, the expectations on yourself, mm. and, the, and the lessons, you know, why would you do it again unless there was something you wanted to do this time that you hadn't achieved last time? Yeah. Well, where can uh, people find you online? Because we should probably wrap it up now. We've just tipped over the hour mark. Um, sure. It, it, what, in terms of... Uh, I mean, social media or anything like that? Yeah, I occasionally join in with Twitter. I'm not very good at it. They're much funnier, more acutely sort of plugged in people than me. But that's a bit from there. I'm also, um, I've got a website and I'm, um, yeah, that's probably it really in terms of general <laughs> internet press. Probably enough. And that's frankly. all under your name. Or no, I think your Twitter handle is different. Yes. Yeah, my Twitter handle is handheld camera, yeah. which uh, very much sums up <laughs> production to date. Um and yeah, so that's where I, yeah, that's where you can find me there for all my unwanted views. No, well, I, I think that's been a really good chat. Um, thanks for being so awesome. I think there's a lot of food for thought there for people in terms of writing and, you know, stepping into the directing shoes and indie production. So yeah, Justin Trekker, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you enormously.